0: Jelly is an award-winning arts charity based in Reading and once upon a time one of their team members dreamt of being a radio DJ. Thanks to podcasting, a global pandemic forcing all of our work online and funding from the Arts Council England using money from the National Lottery, her dream has come true and that's me, Kate. We hope that Jelly Sound and Vision will be a relaxed chat with interesting people who just happen to be creative and sometimes make art. My first guest is John Angerson, a photographer, who also happens to be one of our twelve artists at home, a residency programme we have been running during lockdown. So now we're recording. I've lost every part of my brain. <laughs> so that's good. What brings you to Reading, John?
1: It's a funny thing. I I've never quite worked out how I got here, but I've ended up here. I was living in London, having a very nice life, living in North London, and then me and my partner Faye had a baby called Daisy and we decided that we probably should have more space because little baby crawling on concrete on our sort of uh, window let window like we had like a little thing you could open a window and you could sit on the roof safe we thought, yeah a safe and b she needs some grass and so we on, on a complete whim Faye found this arts and crafts house for rent it sounded like it sounded idyllic um, in a place called Bix which is near Henley so she sent me photographs I was away working at the time and she goes should we rent this rent out our flat and rent this place for a year see how we get on I went yeah do it great idea next thing I know we've transported ourselves into this house in Bix literally the nearest shop was three miles away we had the remnants of a Roman villa in the backfield it had pheasants nesting in the garden. It was the most, it was like living in a field, it was freezing. It was the coldest house I've ever lived in. And long story short story, we decided after a year that we maybe needed a little bit more people around us. So then we went through the process of trying to buy a house, which is always a pain. So we found this place, we said let's, so do you know when you walk in somewhere and you think, yeah let's have this one. (laughs) And we've ended up here really. It's taken me probably a lot longer than uh, Daisy and Faye to get used to it because that fear of missing out from not being in London is terrible. Still, it still gets me sometimes. In Covid it's fine. During Covid I've not missed anything but I often see all my friends out and about in London I think, oh, I can still go obviously but it's just always that little bit of extra hassle isn't it trying to get the last train home. I hate those last train homes. I'd rather get the clean, fast, tidy one half seven or something yeah the one that smells better <laughs> yeah um, what is it face dad calls it the hospital train the last <laughs> one because it is a bit grim, isn't it yeah. so yeah so I've ended up in North Reading kind of without any plan really but now I'm beginning to get it I'm beginning to I think with anything isn't it you, with any place you move to you have um it takes you a while to kind of get used to you meet people or you feel co- geographical sort of psychological misplacement. When, you, when you're dropped in somewhere to live and you don't know where you're going and you don't know the routes, you don't know how to get anywhere and you've, it's quite, you feel quite anxious with, you, with your geography, not necessarily with yourself, but with the geography. And I had that when I first moved here because when I was living in London, I had loads of friends nearby. I knew, you know, I knew all the shopkeepers, I had a little office there, I had a little studio there. And I left all of that to come where it's a different lifestyle completely. I grow vegetables and make slow gin now. <laughs> who, who doesn't? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who
0: doesn't? I get, I get that entirely though, because I, moved, I, I grew up in Reading and then I moved away for many years and I lived in London for a long time. And I think the thing in London is there are, it's actually quite easy to find your community. I think that's what I found. And there literally everything is on your doorstep. Mm-hmm. And when I moved back to Reading, it took me a really long time to, to, to find that community. But then what I realised is when you find that community, it's really solid and mm-hmm. good and, and, and it's there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And logistically, I think it's easier because in London, you know, I had our friends who lived, you know, in South London. I would never see them because like going from North, it's just like, ah, I can't be bothered. What's the point? <laughs> Whereas here, you can literally get get around really quickly can't you there's not that same geographic issues yeah.
0: three hours it took me to get from north london to south london once yeah.
1: and it was always always knackered and dirty and like black bogeys oh we should probably not put on podcast. <laughs> 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 sorry but you're happy now i think i've just stopped fighting it i've stopped fighting that oh i should be here i should be there i do think it's partly an age thing as well I think if I was younger and I'd left London to come here, it would be a different story. But mm. I kind of, I've i sort of had my time of running around London. Do you
0: know what my plan is? My plan is to retire to the South Bank. I, this, this, is, this is my plan. So I'm gonna to retire to the South Bank and I'm gonna have a little flat and the balcony is gonna be full of red geraniums.
1: Right.
0: And I'm going to basically frequent Royal Festival Hall and that whole area, with my husband obviously, he's still around, and I will permanently wear red lipstick and uh, drink gin.
1: Sort of like, yeah, lovely. That's a very specific plan. Isn't it? I'm not sure if you're gonna be able to afford a flat in the South Bank, like, no, you can maybe rent one. Yeah, very small,
0: you know those shoebox ones. I'm thinking about like the Coin Street (laughs) development around Borough as well, like somewhere like right on the South Bank.
1: Mine is to, move to France, uh, have some sort of house with loads of outbuildings that I could set stuff up and leave them and not have to keep breaking everything down. I'd, have all, I'd get all my darkroom Room stuff out of my shipping container that's still there and build the darkroom Room again. I'd buy a 2CV in light blue. Uh, but it's actually, I'd buy a Citroen Diane, actually. That was my first car. And I'd basically bumble around some rural France sort of photographing sunflowers.
0: See, yours is also quite specific.
1: <laughs> and maybe, yeah, drinking, what would I be drinking? I'm not a big wine drinker, so maybe I quite like the have you ever had homemade Pinot, which is like a slow gin, but it, it's made with fortified wine. No drinking and driving in my Diane though. No,
0: because you don't want to rate with Diane. No. <laughs> so John, how did you get started in photography? Well,
1: I, I was very lucky I, um, my dad was a kind of, really enjoyed taking photographs. I think he had a, he had like a little dark room when he he was growing up. So he had little few bits and bobs lying around the house like cameras and stuff. And I remember he, back in the day before eBay, um, one used to get secondhand things from the back of the local paper. There was the classified ads. And I mem- distinctly remember him sitting on the table that he always sat at, and read the local paper. He goes, oh, there's a camera here. Uh, it comes with a lens and what have you. It's 15 pounds. Should we, should we go and have a look at it? I went, yeah, right. So we got in the car. We drove around to this old boy. I think the truth is I think my dad probably wanted the, ca- the camera because it, it was quite a nice one and it was quite cheap. And we turned up. Transpires that the guy who was selling it was a, quite a well-known... He was in his 80s. He was a North, I grew up in Northampton. He was a, a, a portrait photographer of some repute. Uh, anyway, he, he said, oh, put, he, my dad gave him, roll. I think I put some money in, bought this camera. And the guy said, here's a roll of film. Go and shoot it of your mum and dad and bring it back to me and I'll show you how to process it. So I went off into the garden, photographed my brother and sister and whatever you, made a few mistakes, went back to his house. He took me up into his bathroom, showed me how to process it. And that was it. I was hooked, absolutely hooked. I thought this is magic. I can get this little bit of film. I put it in some chemicals, and then I can print it. And then I just became a bit obsessed with it. This was I was about fourteen, I think.
0: That leads me on to my next question quite nicely, actually. Which was, I'm looking at your work. There's a lot of stories. Some of the work that you've done, it seems to be quite story-led. And I was going to ask whether or not it was the photography the medium of photography that hooked you, or telling
1: people's stories? I think it's probably a combination of two. I I was quite shy as a kid. I wasn't a very social animal. I was quite, you know, I'd sort of avoid groups and stuff, but I had this camera and suddenly I, I became like a sort of Marvel comic character. As soon as I put the camera to my eye, I suddenly had confidence and I could talk and I would say, oh, could I photograph you? I don't know where that came from. It's the old cliche of it being like a shield, isn't it? I'd, I'd photographed something at my school, yeah. Like we had a helicopter come one day, a sea king helicopter came, I don't know, it was probably trying to get people to join the military or something like that. And I remember photographing it out of the art room window. And then I literally asked, Miss Sibley was my auntie, she said, can I run this down to the newspaper? She went, yeah, quick. I said, my bike's here. She went, go then, quick. So I rode my bike down to the newspaper, gave the picture to the film, he ran it off into the dark room, came back he went, We'll use that and we'll pay you twenty-five pounds. And that was you can imagine, age fourteen. Twenty-five quid. It's like, I'm rich as well. You <laughs> are like, rich. Twenty-five pounds a picture they paid. They don't pay that anymore. Well, they probably still pay twenty-five pounds a picture. In fact, local newspapers don't exist anymore. They're all they've all disappeared. Mm-hmm. And news- the newspaper industry is disappearing. So I I, I I worked for newspapers. So that kind of started making me interested in people and human interest stories and telling a story and creating series of, uh, series of work uh, and images to sort of build a kind of narrative. And that, and that came from partly from being working in journalism and partly having that confidence and wanting to talk to people. I'm quite nosy, I think. When I've got my confidence, if you ask anyone, Without a camera, I don't speak really. If, I, if I'm not talking about photography, or I haven't got a camera, I'm actually quite incredibly introverted. Uh, but if you give me a camera and a group of strangers, a different character appears, it's really odd. An extrovert loudmouth appears. But most of the time, I'm at, if, if I'm not... I'm sure anyone who's been to a party or something where I'm there, I just literally hide in the corner and don't want anything to do with it I find it really 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 nerve-wracking
0: I think most of the interesting people at parties (laughs) stay in kitchens but that's that's really interesting though so is the camera the focus so it removes the focus from you and puts it onto the person or the thing that you're photographing
1: I I, yeah I I think some there's some deep psychology going on here isn't there I think it's probably a case of the subject, probably still sees me, some bloke holding a metal box. But my psychology towards them is they can't see me. So I feel like can, I can be relaxed a little bit. Does that make sense? I'm, when, I'm, when I'm taking pictures, I am at my happiest. I'm sure other photographers will talk about this. If you're making pictures, it's transcendental. There's that moment when you're fixed trying to make a picture, or you're working with a community, or whatever you're doing, you don't hear anything else. You don't, you don't think about anything else. You are purely in a space that is, is something else. It's a different world. And then when you stop and you relax, you suddenly get tired and hungry. Do you know what I mean? You suddenly, I can work for you know, a 14-hour shift if I'm working with something. Like, say, you know, with the book I did on a religious group, I could spend 14 hours with them, not be hungry, not be tired, you know, thinking about nothing else. Then as soon as I got in the car to drive back to my hotel or to my to home, I would just suddenly almost physically collapse and feel really hungry and thirsty. I wouldn't drink, you know, I'd maybe drink the odd glass of water, a cup of tea, but you because you're in a kind of transcendental space. Totally absorbed in it. Yeah, yeah.
0: And is that the same in studio work as well?
1: To some degree. To some degree. As I've got a bit older, I've enjoyed the process a bit more. But growing up, I always wanted to be out and about and jumping around and jumping on planes and, like, seeing the world. It's, uh, for me, it's kind of a ticket. It's a passport. I'm, I'm basically a professional tourist. I get paid on occasions, not very much very often, but I do get paid to literally go and, you know, be nosy. You're being invited into... A, a place or a situation that a lot of people don't have that privilege. It is a privileged position to be in, being so lucky, so lucky.
0: Going back to your residency for Jelly, one of the 12 artists at home, yeah. visiting other people's sanctuaries. You're, you're still in the process of doing that at
1: the moment. Yeah, I've, got, I've got like three left, two left, two and a half. I've got three because one needs to be done again, but yeah.
0: Going to those places, obviously without the person, did you get a sense of their sanctuary in each of yeah,
1: them? I had again that transcendental experience. I, I, I found, you know, each artist. I either had a chat with them on the phone or in email. They gave me a, a good, a good idea of where it was, the specific point. I'm quite, I've always been quite interested in specific locations and how you respond, without sounding too arty. There's there's a whiff of potent, being pretentious, but there's something about being in a space and sitting in it for long enough. David Hockney talks a lot about about this. And as a kid, I used to fish a lot. I used to go fishing quite a lot. And I noticed when you go fishing, you set up all your thing in perfect silence. Then after a couple of hours, the landscape starts accepting you and birds and animals and all sorts of things start appearing and you start seeing things. That's only because you've sort of, you know, placed yourself in that environment for long enough. Anyway, so my jelly thing was, I had these 11, 11 spots and I keep going back to them. I went back to one place about five or six times, because I was trying to find the perfect moment when the light and everything worked. And I also found them quite interesting because there was, there was something quite tranquil about it. And other people's havens and sanctuaries, I'm on a winner there. People have found something there and I really wanted to find as well, and on all of them I did. Some of them I was a bit sceptical about, I thought, really, is that? But then once I got there, I said, ah, I see. This is nice here, isn't it?
0: That's so that, really interesting, though, as well, is, oh, I, I'm not sure I get that, and then arrive and understand why. And
1: it's like, almost like embedding yourself into that place for a bit of time, because photography is all about time, time, light, space, location. We can be so fleeting with our experience. We rush in, do it, rush out again. When sometimes if you sit, I was going, going back to David Hockney, I read recently his stuff he did in Yorkshire. I read a piece by one of his assistants and his assistant said for about four weeks, he got, they got a, a land Rover and they took the door off the land Rover. and Hockney basically spent three or four hours every two metres. So he would drive the car two metres, he'd sketch for a couple of hours you go okay move on another two meters and he'd focus into that the area outside the car the, the Land Rover's window so you kind of focus in on a, on a specific place and things appear I found things will appear after time you arrive at a place and you think this is never going to make a good picture but you sit out and keep looking keep looking keep looking keep looking suddenly your brain goes ah there's it that's interesting it doesn't always work but
0: what's really interesting about that as well from a a, a layman's perspective is the is it go it's almost the direct opposite to how a generation has grown up with photography in the sense that it's like the Instagram photography or the instantaneous moment of something that people are taking and it's all quick 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 whereas the way that you're describing it is that it's a much more contemplative yeah experience
1: yeah in the past that's how I worked you know growing up being a young photographer, I was, you know, literally parachuting into places and trying, you know, sort of snatching, snatching pictures. But now, as I've got a bit older, I find it more of a challenge now to, to arrive somewhere. And there isn't actually anything there to really photograph, obviously, you know, obvious to your eye. And I found the more time you sit and wait for light to change or wait for something to happen or, or just the way you see it I think it's it's almost like it's like a backlash to myself if that makes sense it's like testing myself I don't I don't want to I don't want to take pictures that I've taken before and mm. I don't want the style to be the same I want to challenge the way I approach it which sometimes is really hard because you just default to the way you've done it before and I try and think right I don't want to do it how I've always done it Let's try doing it this way. It doesn't come instantly. You do sort of make quite a few duds. But
0: then that's how you learn. Exactly, yeah. So, have you ever been to a location and just not found that moment or the lighting or the...
1: Yeah, I've turned up, even with some of these that I've been doing um, for this at-home commission, um, I've arrived, I'm trying to think of one. Whatever I did, it, it just... It, nothing would happen. It just didn't, it didn't happen. And then I just kept going back and then suddenly it was always there in the first place. I just wasn't looking properly. It was a picture of the uh, a greenhouse in a field, not a greenhouse, a polytunnel. That's the word, polytunnel. And I keep walking past it thinking, mm, and did loads, loads of pictures in the other part of the field. And then I went back and, again and suddenly the sun hit the polytunnel. The polytunnel lit up like it was some alien spaceship and as I walked through the gate, I went, it was always here, John, you just weren't looking. Or maybe the light wasn't right, but it was always there in the first place. What were you thinking? So I quickly got the camera out and I thought, well, there it is, got it. And I drove home again, got back in the car and thought, oh, I'm hungry, <laughs> I'm thirsty. Cause I was in that, you know, I was in that space where I was just only looking. All I was doing was looking. I wasn't thinking about anything else other than looking looking is quite tiring
0: because all your entire focus is going through your eyes and taking absolutely everything in i would imagine it's like looking looking at something and then just really absorbing it your whole brain is focusing on that one image yeah and i love the idea that i mean i I know which photograph you're talking about and i I loved it i i loved how extraordinary something so ordinary it was brilliant
1: Another really important thing I've got to say is what I think is a good picture, my audience don't necessarily do. I've noticed this more and more as, <laughs> as I've gone down some of these these tracks, visual visual roadways. I think, oh yeah, this is great work, John. Yeah, and people are going to love this. So I put it on Instagram or something and you think, nobody's it, one. Nobody. Then you put the, a picture, you think, ah, oh, that's a bit. Uh, I don't know about that. But and it's, people go crazy for it. Not go crazy for it, but yeah. Everyone goes, oh great picture, you know, or I'm not saying you should be guided by what Instagram or social media says, but it's really surprising what other people see in your work. I think what I think what happens with with photographers, if you it's a bit like a musical instrument to some degree. The more and more you practice, the more the actual camera and the technique and all the technical stuff doesn't really You don't really think about it. You just know that if, you know, you know, quite often I can look at a scene and go, the exposure is going to be whatever. I can look at my light meter and I'm more or less there in the first place. But that's just from every day, from the age of, let's say, uh, 18. From the age of 18 to the age of mid-30s, I photograph something every single day every single, maybe the, the odd Saturday off, uh, the odd Sunday off rather, I would be out photographing or meeting people or printing or experimenting or you know, learning my trade. So now that I'm you know, a bit older, I'm in my f- 50s, all that technical knowledge is sort of in, in, in a deep hard drive somewhere in my brain that I know that light with that combination, with that exposure, with that camera, that has, if, with that scan on in that colour space will do this. But I don't really think about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's second nature. I just, I just know that if if I, you know, subconsciously, I probably think I want, but those pictures from the at home thing, I had no idea how I was gonna, what the aesthetic was gonna be. But the aesthetic, if, I, if you look through them, there's an aesthetic all the way through. And only after I've more or less finished it, I've suddenly realised what the aesthetic was. And that was something to do with always, in some ways, having the sun in it somehow. Don't know where that came from. I didn't even realise I was doing it. I just knew that I want the sun in. Maybe it was, we could go, we could do some post-vascularisation and say, oh, it's, you, you know, COVID, it's the new like, the new beginning for the world or something like that if you want to. But that wasn't, that wasn't a conscious thing until I laid all the prints out on my, office, uh, my studio desk and thought, hang on a sec, they've all got the sun in oh well
0: that's cool well yeah exactly it is cool and it is that thing where you look and you are subconsciously creating a collection Mm. without actually making it like having to sit down and say i would like the sun in this this is this is is how i want this to work it's it's the images are creating that for you yeah because i do think they look like a collection it it was really interesting sort of seeing them come through to see whether or not different people's sanctuaries how they would appear i mean where do you think do you think you'll go further with that residency is coming to an end
1: yeah i think i think the word haven has come back into play i don't know where that's come from because the idea purely stemmed from uh i saw i saw the commission and then in, in all fairness i said to faye i should, i really fancy doing something about and then she's and then she said don't forget we need to go for our uh our, our walk today—don't forget our hour's walk—and I suddenly just thought. And then Daisy, my daughter, goes, "Can we go to Woodpecker Woods again?" And I went, "Woodpecker Woods," and she went, "You know the one with the woodpecker," because we keep seeing, And I went, "That place—we've—we've—we've we've, we've found a, a location near our house, and we've sort of—we've, you know, adopted it as our as our sanctuary. It's not the word sanctuary hadn't appeared then. I just thought that's—we've—we've we've sort of claimed it for ourselves." So then, then I suddenly just started thinking Sanctuary it's, its a place we go to like forget what's, because it was all getting a bit scary with that COVID at one point. You know, it was all getting a bit strange, wasn't it? I was thinking, you know, there's no, you know, we couldn't go to the supermarket and everyone was looking terrified. Everyone was terrified. And I was thinking this is getting a little bit scary. But for some reason, when you go on those walks, it sort of seems to sort of drift a bit further away from being as scary. So then, then that's the, the, the idea. Just literally popped into my head: a safe haven, away from feeling stressed. So woodpecker wood st- started it, and then the rest are kind of just appeared.
0: And it was really interesting that the artists all
1: immediately just went, "Oh yeah, I totally have one of those—a mm. place to go where where it wasn't feeling so scary or so intense." I like the word "haven." Yeah, or- I do. I'm beginning to like the word haven. Haven. And
0: maybe that's something about the change, the shift in the way that everybody is operating within the whole COVID pandemic as well.
1: The next level is haven. I wonder what the next one will be. Yeah, that's probably very true.
0: Yeah, Haven
1: sounds a little less, a little warmer, doesn't it? Haven.
0: It's like we've got used to it a little bit now. We're not trying to escape something so much as just come to terms with it a little bit.
1: Haven's got a nautical feel to it as well, isn't it? Do yeah. animals have havens? Yeah, I'm sure there's a reference. Don't animals have havens? Isn't it something to do with birds or
0: something? Google it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> haven. I, like, I think that's really true. And I think, as you say, I mean, everybody has one of those. W- was anybody's inside?
1: No. One lady's was in her garden. So initially I thought, ah. Again, my, my classic sort of preconceived ideas, oh, no, I don't want to do it in your garden. And then she sent me a picture of her garden. I went, it's the garden, because she'd done some really f- amazing things with colour and light and stuff. It was great. Uh, no one was inside. Usually large expanses of, of greenery, to be honest. I guess living outside of London. One guy's in London, which I haven't done, which I'm doing this week, actually. His is a park in London, which would probably be an interesting one. But i worked out if I get up early enough, the light might be nice. Like if I get up for sunrise, could change, you know, a normal looking picture of a park into something quite interesting. Because a lot of these are shot, almost all of them are exclusively shot at sunrise. Again with the sun. The sun, yeah. The, uh, and again, you know, I could, I could go into, oh, well, I wanted to do... The truth is, because we were at home and my partner was working, and my daughter was at home it was the only time i had free to go and do something so i'd get up at 5 shoot till 8 come back and make everyone breakfast because it was a pra- <laughs> it was a practical thing it wasn't but well, i'm
0: know. a great believer in necessity being the mother of invention yeah i you. think i think working around things that you have in your life can be the thing that makes something mundane truly beautiful
1: yeah and there is something really nice. I've always been a big fan of mornings. That might sound a bit, a bit strange, but I, I am always been quite an early bird. I'm not good in the evening. I'm usually asleep by 10 o'clock. But.
0: Oh, I, absolutely. Mornings are the greatest light. During the whole lockdown
1: mm-hmm.
0: situation, people's cha- lives obviously changed dramatically. And you know, you never know, we might be headed there again, who knows. But what would you personally keep
1: from what you experienced? the the usual the usual answers the plane the plane noise has gone I heard one the other morning and I said to Faye, I said there's a plane she went oh wow yeah if you listen out now there's no planes is there there used to be planes all the time all the time crisscrossing the, time. the sky and uh, what else would I um, well it's it's, it's 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 just that everyone I know seems to have connected back to the outside you know that's what we that's what we kind of you know our core being is all about that really isn't it growing stuff and sort of experiencing stuff outside. The weather was lovely, wasn't it? We've had some lovely weather. So I think without sounding too cliche, I I know I know it was pretty, you know, tragic that so many people have died, but I think I think there's a, a sort of wake up call that A you don't have to check you don't you don't have to all run around like headless chickens. Uh, driving everywhere, flying everywhere, we've all survived, you know, the majority of the population have have survived this, it's unfortunate that a lot of people haven't, but there must be some good that we can take from this, in a positive sense. I think, you know, being a self-employed freelance, my life hasn't changed that radically, I've obviously worked a bit less, but I was always in a kind of quite solitary being, cause like you're self-employed, you kind of, it's all piecemeal work. Sometimes you're really busy, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you spend the day making slow gin, like I was saying, or some days you're busy working, you know, driving into London, creating all sorts of different projects. And everyone seems to be working from home now. And I've always been, I've always worked from home or from a, you know, a little office somewhere. So my life hasn't really changed. So I think there's some positives. I hope there is. I can't, I, I really can't see it going back to what it was before, because it, it, be it won't be able to. Yeah,
0: I completely agree with you with the, um, see that's why I was asking about the whether or not anybody's sanctuaries were inside. And, and I think it was that when, when suddenly when people were told they weren't allowed to go outside or they weren't, they could only go outside for an hour, it became the most important thing. And I think that's a really nice thing to grasp onto, but also to acknowledge the fact that not everyone has that outdoor space. Yeah. In kind of urban environments, parks are really important. And
1: and they closed some of those, there, didn't they? I, I think I do think you and I are probably were very privileged during this whole period because we have got outside space. Mm. I don't know how I would have felt about it all if I'd been stuck in the room all day.
0: Well, that's what I mean. That's why it's like when they close the parks. Some some councils close the parks. I was like, "You can't, you can't, you actually can't do that." And then they open them again half a minute later, thinking, "No, we actually can't do that." Yeah, like that's really important. I
1: think we are all fundamentally wired for that existence, but I think we all get so wrapped up in everything else that we forget what we we lose all that that feeling because there's not there's nothing better than having your hands in mud growing stuff or out in a forest or by a river or by the sea sort of just like getting dirty yeah I think that's something that is our core but I think including myself you know so many times I've sort of spent weeks and weeks not leaving the house just working or in my in my studio not leaving but this was almost forced to leave what you could think I've got an hour I've got an hour let's go yeah. And overrun. Oh, we're half an hour, an hour and a half late. Ooh, we've been out an hour and a half. Oh, but you, I suddenly felt great. I physically felt really, you know, you know, my head was clear with all that fresh air. And but at the same time, you had that anxiety, occasional like waves of anxiety, thinking, "Oh God, the whole country, the people are like, this is horrendous."
0: I, but, had a thing, I had a thing uh, and I remember texting my friend saying oh god I, I think I, I woke up and I thought I was having a panic attack and then I realised it wasn't a panic attack it was just a dawning realisation that I'm not in a
1: film this is actually yeah. happening. Yeah it, it was a very yeah and that we're gonna have a nation of uh, we've we've all, all the whole nation's gonna have mild post-traumatic stress probably. Yeah. some degree because it was all very odd and it still is a bit odd. Yeah, you know I go to you know wherever you go, it's like oh, you know, you're a bit close or, you know, I forgot my mask. I'm always thinking, oh, I forgot my mask again. And I think you're like you know, and like washing your hands. Did you? I think we all washed our hands so much they were getting sore. I haven't got. That's a sign that things are getting better. My hands are sort of bleeding. Yeah, and you sort of rubbing them basically we? every ten minutes. Yes, yeah, dripping them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: if there was something if there was some other way because obviously you've been documenting lockdown through the jelly project but if there had been i mean do you have any ideas of another way to document the this period of time
1: that's really interesting well the the jelly the jelly project i don't know if you remember there's a there's a, a parallel project going on inside it which is when i've shown the work on the uh, they're, they're, they're all um they're all diptychs so there's the image of the location and because there's 11 artists there's 11 pictures uh but the the other side is my kind it's, it's actually my daughter's sanctuary if that makes sense mm. so everything so during all our walks she would like most kids arrive she'd just put things in my pocket as we're walking around or i'd have to carry a bag oh don't forget the bag dad daddy because we might collect some, and she collects all these little trinkets and I've got a pile of them all over there at the back of my office. And I've been slowly sort of making still lives of these. Unfortunately, I had to throw one of them away because it was a, uh, it was like a mouldy sort of skull of something.
0: Oh no, you shouldn't have. You should have given it to me. Uh, I could have bleached it. My son's... Oh uh, uh, no. He's got, honestly, I've bleached so many skulls.
1: Oh, I... Tenually, I,
0: I they're in perspex boxes in his room. Uh, next.
1: Should, oh, next, next time, I'll bring it to you. I've been busy redoing other projects as well because I've been working on a project I shot years and years ago, 25 years ago actually. And I, I listened to a Zoom conference during lockdown, and one of one of the photographers who was giving Zoom said he was talking about how you edit for the the time you're the time you're in. So when you you make a set of work, your the way you edit it is all to do with what was going on at the time. A in your head. Be in the sort of societies, you know, the, the largest, you know, social conscience of the society. Um, he says, he, he mentioned going back to old work and re-editing it completely with a different fresh set of eyes. So I went back to a project on, I'd done on astronauts. I spent some time following a group of astronauts from the moment they were chosen to the moment they went up in space. So I got all the negatives out literally everywhere and for about a week and a half re-edited the whole project and suddenly realized that I, I, picked, I hadn't picked pictures. I don't know why, I think it's because you've got an emotional attachment to them. Because at the time of shooting, you think, oh, I'm glad I've got that one, that's what I really wanted. Because it was probably hard to get, or it was difficult to get, or there was a reason why. But when you haven't got that memory anymore, the memory's removed from actually taking them. You know, you look at them, you don't even remember taking them. You suddenly start seeing a whole set of pictures that weren't there before. So you
0: have two entirely different projects, like there's yeah. the same source material, but actually it comes out as two yeah. almost entirely different projects. Just because, for, well, I mean, it's your eyes; they're your eyes looking
1: at it. But you and don't remember those eyes. Their eyes, their eyes from a, a past. You'd, there's no memory of taking them. So if you can imagine when you edit, you still have the memory of actually what was there. And the movement, maybe the memory might move. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you can. You've got. Um, it's got baggage, hasn't it? It's got baggage from the fact that you, oh, I traipsed up that hill and it was raining and like, you know, and my foot was hurting and, oh, the car got a parking ticket, but I got the picture, yeah? And if, or got the pictures. If you go back to them 10 years later, you have no memory of the hassle you went through to get them. You just see them for what they are and you have a, comp- has a completely different way of working, which is actually quite refreshing. Because yeah. I thought, John, what were you thinking? Why have you never printed this picture? It's lovely, it's great. But for some reason I hadn't... I think it's, yeah, it's because I had a different... I think partly because I was on deadline with it. it had to get out because I think um, uh, the Sunday Times Magazine were using them. They'd, they'd agreed to use them. So when I got back to England, it was all hands on deck to edit and get the prints sent. So I was literally, you know, had like about three or four days to turn the whole thing around. So I was editing really quickly. And that's in my head, that's what I went, that's what I kept in my archive. But when I've, uh, you know, remastered it again, it's a different set of pictures.
0: And age as well. I mean, you're you're sort of getting older, it changes the way that you look at the stuff that you've done in the past, doesn't it? You're less
1: brutal on yourself, I think. If it's slightly out of focus years ago, I'd have gone, oh, it's not, it's not, it's not perfectly fine. But now I just think, oh, it's a nice picture. It doesn't really matter if it was perfectly sharp or perfectly out of focus. So, yeah.
0: You could do a whole series of them. You know how they um, they do film reboots. You could just do a reshoot with all of your collections, twenty five years on.
1: Yeah, it's not a bad idea actually. I might, yeah, I might redo the the, the religious cult I did after they've disbanded. Now they've, all, they've shut the whole thing down. Oh, that would be really interesting. Yeah, I think I think that's something I might I might wait a bit because it's still quite it's still quite raw for me and for the whole the whole group so maybe in another okay. 10 years time. I mean, I might can married. you
0: explain a little bit about that project? So
1: I spent like I, it started off as a college project in the in the sort of late 80s and I there's a group called the Jesus Army they're like um, a charismatic Baptist group who all live in shared housing with shared wealth shared, shared purse so they have like loads of community houses all around England and, and there's some in Scotland as well. And I, the headquarters was based in my hometown where I grew up in Northampton. So I basically followed them for about 15 years, going there, I don't know, five or six times a year. And just sort of built up a relationship with them. And then I did a book on them that was published probably about five or six years ago. Yeah, so it was like a proper embed, embedded situation of, and photographing it without any, you know, nothing was set up or, Posed. It was all very observational, documentary, all shot in black and white. It was like it was quite an intense process. But more recently, it's all I'm sure if people Google Jesus Army and BBC, there's a big thing on the BBC on the BBC about it. They've had to close it down because there's been allegations of abuse. Mm. Um, something that I didn't ever see or come across. But yeah, they've had to close the whole group down now uh, but if people go if people have a chance google you will see be see f- I don't want to get you know into any libelous controversy about it but yeah
0: but it's amazing that you were able to follow them for yeah. such a long time
1: when I first started photographing them there was like about 60 members and then when uh when they disbanded again i checked my numbers but we're talking in the thousands thousands of members so it grew and grew and was incredibly popular. And they had probably maybe eight or 10 different community houses all around, massive, you know, huge Victorian buildings all around the UK, where people would live in commune. Uh, and they had got a big eight, uh, big farm and headquarters in, in Northampton. And they ran quite a few businesses in Northampton as well. Like they had a camping shop, they had health food shops. They were kind of like, a, you know, Huge, huge um, organisation, but the whole thing's been closed.
0: Would you look for a similar project again like that, with that kind of longevity? Yeah, I,
1: this, uh, interesting you say that. I, I've been off in the last few months, last six months, I've, I've been photographing mostly landscapes, in inverted commas, uh, and I do miss people a little bit. I do miss embedding myself into some form of community or some sort of project that involves humans. Because I find myself, I am going a little bit back into being introverted again. And I probably need to get out more. (laughs) Um, Well, not get out more, but have more interaction with other people. So my next project, I believe, I have no idea what it is, but I, like to think i'm being called something is telling me that i need to go and do something with more with people but people are so much harder people are so much harder is it because they don't sit still no well they you know you have to sort. yeah yeah it's it's a tricky one isn't it yeah yeah it's it's not as it's not as transcendental i find you've got to put a lot more a lot more of yourself into it not that you don't with landscape but it's a very different you know Trees, don't, trees and grass don't, you know, aren't political, are they, so much? They,
0: they don't um, answer that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. Maybe I'm just scared. I'm just avoiding it because, I, you know.
0: After six months of lockdown, I think maybe you should maybe <laughs> get back out
1: there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be more people-based. What about animals? No, I'm rubbish. We've got a cat and I'm not very good with her. I like her. She's very sweet, but we're not. Yeah, I I didn't grow up with animals, actually, so I'm not that good with animals. Um, I do like an animal, but um, no, not to photograph. Maybe maybe it'll be people, but but a little, you know, a sort of hybrid between what I'm I've been doing. Like my last my last series, my last few projects have been devoid of people, but you can sort of see the traces of them. So maybe my next project will be. A bit more people focused, as in you might be able to see people in some way. I think maybe, or maybe uh, maybe not. See what happens. <laughs> yes, yeah.
0: I was just thinking because a lot of your work that that I've seen for newspapers and magazines is, is portrait mm. photography. Mm. So do you, do you make? Do you, I mean, is there some on some subconscious level that your the people work is the
1: work work. I think there's a degree of that going on. And if I'm brutally honest, the majority of editorial work is people. It's very rare that you'll get an editorial commission that doesn't involve people or portraits. It still exists to some You do get the odd one that's not people, as in, you know, portraiture. You do get some that are, um, you know, more like maybe a travel piece or. A piece about an area, or you you know, a, a sort of geography piece. But I would say 80% of it is people-focused. So that's kind of the way the market is to make a bit of money to pay for you to go and do your own personal work. Does that make sense? Mm. If you look at any editorial magazine, any any newspaper, magazine, um, periodical, you know, any of those, it's predominantly predominantly portraits. So that's how I've you know, my, web, my 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 editorial work is mostly. That's why it's portrait. That's why it's people. I've got all sorts of weird and wonderful human interest stories. And a proper events, events that people. I mean, proper, they, yeah, proper events. And they properly sent you. They sent you. They sent me for like you know weeks on end. Do you know what I mean? They said, right, go and you know come back when you've got what you need to get. Yeah, don't over don't overdo. You know, if you're staying in a hotel, don't don't send me a bill for the minibar. You know. Just, you know, go easy on your expenses. But...
0: Oh, that's very 90s.
1: Yeah, it was very 90s. I, I've noticed another thing is like, particularly in the photography world, it's not so much about, about the photographer's work anymore. It's sort of almost flipped on its head. And it's about the photographer. It's about how you're perceived as the photographer rather than the work you're producing. Don't get me wrong, there is still avenues to get this sort of work out, yeah? You you can find ways of making this kind of work and having an audience, but I think the traditional ways of getting that work out have slimmed down to virtually nothing. There is, you know, you can make, you can produce your own books, you can make your own zines, you can, you know, there's quite a lot of websites online that you can share this work with. There's organisations like Jelly who love organisation like Jelly. There's the Arts Council, so there there are still ways, but there's no way of. There was always like a a kind of route to the mainstream. Does that make sense? You could shoot interesting human interest stories and then on a Saturday or Sunday, you know, you would reach 2 million people. That still happens. There are still, you know, 2 million people reading the Telegraph magazine and the Sunday Times magazine. But the content is a very different set of content. It's a very aspirational content. And, you know, that's not... Again, I'm contradicting myself. There are the occasional story you get in those magazines that are the sort of things that I do. But I just think there seems to be less of it.
0: So, just to finish up, yeah. you've probably played this game before. Mm-hmm. I hope you have. Uh, it's not really a game, it's more oh. of a question. Dream dinner party.
1: Oh my goodness. How many do I get?
0: Well, I'm going to say six.
1: That's, quite, yeah. but that's
0: not good, is it? Because six, six and, and you is seven. Six and you and your, and, and your partner. Perfect
1: okay okay so your daughter can come too yeah she can come brian eno is number one david Byrne from talking heads can be the, the sort of music department <laughs> top end of the table and then we'd have um oh goodness who would we have then then we'd have
0: there's interesting conversations going on between brian and david already yeah, we can leave
1: them too they'll just look good <laughs> they? leave they'll, them look, to it. they'll just look cool in the corner really beautifully dressed and yeah. just look cool Alan de Botton can be oh, um, okay. Alan de Botton can just be sort of like same age as me, actually, Alan de Botton. Mm. Um, he can be in the middle of the table, just sort of being clever. I'd like to invite David Hockney as well, probably. Excellent choice. Bring David Hockney in. He's, he's quite hard of hearing, so we'd have to put him near someone who can shout. Yeah. Um, how many's that? One, two, three, four. I've got two left. We need some sort of like, uh, I'll tell you what I really like. I've always really liked Tony Benn, the MP, who, who died last year, the, the year before. Uh, so that's one, two, three, four, five, one. I'm more.
0: really enjoying the fact that in your head, you've all, all, also got the seating plan, yeah, haven't
1: seating plan. So we've got David Hockney quite near Alan de Botton because he he's quite a big guy, so we could... Um, so we've got Tony Benn, he's a smoker, so he could sit next to David Hockney, he's also a smoker. There we go. Give them an ashtray and open the window. And finally, I should have a wild card, no. I should have someone. You need
0: someone to mix, to really mix it up.
1: Okay, Gordon Ramsay, throw him in there. He can cook, (laughs) Gordon Ramsay can cook for us. Not that I particularly like, I don't know Gordon Ramsay, but he is, I I do find his, some of his TV programs, they're so rude and confrontational, they're actually really amusing. So yeah, throw him in, just to mix it up.
0: That sounds like a brilliant evening yeah who do you think your daughter would get on best with out of those
1: oh that's a good question she'd probably i think she might get on with someone like alan du botton actually because he seems like quite he's the sort of guy that would be on his hands and knees wouldn't he
0: yeah
1: probably reading her yeah. trying to work out what she's thinking and how she's behaving and why she's behaving in such a way uh, but in a nice way
0: I think that's how it would roll. Well, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Pleasure. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much. Cheerio.
1: See you soon. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. And if you want to find out more about Jelly, the best way is to check out our Insta, Facebook or Twitter feeds using the handle at the Jelly Reading. And keep your ears out for the next episode of Sound and Vision coming soon.